they just want to be able to buy something and 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 have the problem fixed. And it's 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 a design problem, not a technology problem. And so all the time I'm on calls, where should I put widget X? Where should I put, you know, uh, Gizmo Y? I have no idea. What do you mean you have no idea? You're supposed to be the expert on that. Well, I don't know what you're trying to protect with widget X or Gizmo Y. Well, we don't either. We haven't thought about what we need to protect. Okay, well, you're, then you're going to fail. You will fail if you don't know what you're going to protect. And so start thinking about that. And then the answer to where do you start is anywhere. It doesn't matter where you start. It matters that you start, right? You're going to take the thousand mile journey. Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of the SSE Forum. The SSE Forum brings together people like you, the IT practitioner, who are conquering the biggest challenges in networking and security. Together, the members of the forum share strategy, uncover requirements, and discuss best practices for enabling the modern workplace through security delivered at the network edge. To learn more about the SSE Forum, go to ssceforum.com. IO. This podcast is sponsored by Access Security. Access Security secures the modern workplace. They make access to resources and applications impossibly simple and completely seamless. Take the Access 29 minute challenge. See how easy secure application delivery can be. Learn more at accesssecurity.com. And now, on to the podcast. That's right. Today, our guest is John Kinderbog. John is regarded as the father of Zero Trust. His motto is, never trust and always verify. My co-host, Jay Tilson, caught up with him recently and had a chance to interview him. John walks us through his journey on how he started, what sparked his interest in security, and what is the current state of Zero Trust today. This is volume one in a series we are doing with important figures in Zero Trust. Enjoy the interview. Let's kick off with a first question. I guess, John, the first question for you is kind of where did you start in the world of IT and security? And, and, and then what led you kind of down the road to, to I guess, term in the, the term Zero Trust? When I got into the workforce, there were no such things as computers as we knew of them today. They were mainframes with punch cards, seriously. So computers weren't very interesting until the mid eighties, I, I got a chance to work on a big animation pro, uh, project, a computer animation project uh, in, in Hollywood uh, on a Cray XMP. So, you know, the first supercomputer, I mean, it was in a refrigerated room and you should, you know, look up a, a picture of it. It had, it had, it was kind of semicircular and it had, uh, it was essentially a sofa too. So you sat there and talked about the project. That's where you had all your meetings. And I got intrigued by that, started building my own animation computers because I couldn't afford a, um, uh, a, a 
a Cray XMP. I mean, it was several million dollars. And even the anima computer animation computers I was building that were PC-based were incredibly expensive. The video cards were made by AT&T and they cost $7,000. AT&T made all the software that existed at the time too. So I uh, started doing that. And then this video game called Doom came along, right? You guys have played Doom? Yeah, funnily enough, Doom was kind of what led me into my first ever job. Doom came out when I was uh, at university, and then Quake came out not long after. So I ended up playing Quake and getting a job uh, to support the game Quake. So yes, I've played Doom, Duke Nukem, Quake, and all the other kind of first-person shoot-em-ups back in the day. Yeah, well, those were all created by a team out of Dallas, so we knew those people, and I started playing that. Here's a piece of trivia for you. Uh, what, uh, Doom is the only computer game uh, that has its own assigned port number. What's the port number for Doom? I should probably know the answer to that, but I, but I don't. 666. <laughs> yeah, that would. I could have probably guessed that. <laughs> so we started playing Doom, and uh, much like you, we wanted to play Network Doom but uh, we didn't have a network. So I convinced my boss that we needed to build a network in order to transfer these large animation files, which were actually too big to transfer over the old the thick net networks, but he didn't know that. So we built uh, a network to play Doom. And you know, I was talking to this old school Cisco guy and there's a lot of stuff in the original versions of iOS designed to support Doom because uh, after hours, like me, like you, we were all having LAN parties at our offices because we had access to computers that would support that. And that's kind of how I got into it. And, and I was doing broadcast engineering and stuff. And somebody said, hey, there's more money in IT. And so I said, oh, cool. So I did. I started doing IT and I was a network engineer and then they needed a security person. So I started learning security. And that's where I learned to hate trust. So the old Cisco PIX, if you've ever installed one, has this thing called the adaptive security model. There is neither anything adaptive nor secure about a Cisco PIX, but it is what it is. It was actually designed as a NAT translation box. And they use these, this term trust for each, each interface. And so the internal interface had a trust level of 100, the maximum. The external interface had a, automatically a trust level of zero. And you didn't have to have a policy uh, to move traffic from a higher level trust interface to a lower level trust interface. And I hated that. I said, people are going to exfil data across this. No, they won't. And I would try to put in outbound policies and I would get in trouble. That's not how Cisco says you're supposed to do it. And well, ultimately, I was right. That was a really, really bad model. And it was a horrible excuse for a firewall, but that's where I learned and eventually. I started doing more advanced security stuff. And then uh, Forrester Research called and said, hey, you want to be an analyst? And I said, sure, what's an analyst? And my first day at Forrester Research in, in 2008, um, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I literally did not know what the job entailed, but it sounded cool. And they gave me the freedom to research big topics. And one of the things I was researching was my hatred for trust in this adaptive security algorithm. And I thought trust was a stupid idea. And I had met 
a professor uh, out of Purdue who who was researching it and other people. And we were all talking about it. We were talking about it, the Cisco user group in Dallas that I I was uh, leading study groups on. And so I said, we got to get rid of trust uh, in these environments because it's screwing everything up. And and I remember um, the moment I was I was interviewing. I was interviewing a lot of CISOs. And I said, what's your security strategy? And the CISO said, um, trust but verify. And of course, I've heard that, you know, all, all forever for a long time. And uh, I said, why? And he said, well, because Ronald Reagan said so. And I'm thinking, Ronald Reagan, that great cybersecurity dude. Okay, I get that. So I said, uh, trust, I get that. That trust just means I'm not going to do anything uh, to the packet, right? Uh, but what what are you doing to verify? And he said, well, nothing, because uh, it would be rude because they're trusted users. And I realized we had anthropomorphized the network so much that we'd lost track of what we were actually doing. So the idea that John is on the network, well, I'm not on the network. I haven't shrunken down into a subatomic particle and been sent across the public Internet to the Zoom server so uh, we can have this conversation right now. And that's never happened to anybody in the real world. And it rarely even happens in the movies. Maybe uh, Tron, Lawnmower Man. They tell me Wreck-It Ralph. I haven't seen Wreck-It Ralph. Luckily, my kids are old enough that I don't have to watch stuff like that anymore. Uh, but, but man, even in The Matrix, they got to plug in, right? So I'm often confused. People will often say, John. You're saying that people aren't trustworthy, and I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying something more profound. People aren't packets. There is no purpose to have trust in a digital system, right? Because trust is a human emotion that we've injected into, the, into a digital system for absolutely no reason. And therefore, it becomes a vulnerability because you can, uh, you can exploit trust. What was, the, what was the thing? What was the technique, the attack technique? that Snowden and Manning used, the two most famous you know, people in cybersecurity. They're the Madonna and, and, and Beyonce of cyber, man. They're, they're so famous, they're one word people. And what was the thing that they used? They used the trust model. It was just a raw exploitation of this broken, failed trust model. And people just wanna hold on to this word trust and they don't even understand what it means. And it, it doesn't even have a history in technology, in, in workforce thinking until 1958, maybe with Morton Deutsch. But prior to that, it's a, it's a philosophical and religious concept. And so we've just injected this word arbitrarily into a system, and it causes most of the problems we have, right? If we want to say, what is the fundamental problem that causes ransomware attacks? It's the tr broken trust model. Phishing, broken trust model. Everything, it comes down to the very root cause is the broken trust model. So in 2008, um, a friend of mine at McAfee and I wrote a LinkedIn post, um, he, who he's sadly now passed away, said, hey, I want to play these five golf courses up and down uh, the east coast of, of the U.S., starting in Montreal and going down to, to uh, Atlanta. And they were Scottish-style links courses. And he was struggling to find a reason to have these events so he could play these golf courses. What are you working on? I said, I'm having this, this thing where I'm looking at trust, and I think we should get rid of it. You know, and I said, the, the trust level should always be zero. 
and and so that's you know instead of 100 and and zero for the different interfaces and then 51 and 49 at the different dmz's it should all be zero trust so how much trust should there be in a zero trust environment zero and people are still trying to say a zero trust network makes things trusted or in the NIST documentation, they talk about implicit trust. They can't let go of the word and the concept. They're so in love with this thing that's known as a plastic word, a word that has no meaning in, in real life. We just toss it around. And so that's where the, the beginnings of zero trust happened. Now I spent two years from 2008 to two, September 2010 doing primary research, interviewing people all over the world. And then I wrote the first report, September 2010. And then I wrote, everybody says, well, you wrote a paper on zero trust. I wrote probably a dozen actual reports that had real primary research, uh, that had real editors. And, and you know, it, it, it's real. It's what academic research should be. That's the kind of research you did at Forrester. And then you, you, you're you were incentivized to think big thoughts and come up with big ideas. And, and the goal was to change the world. And that has happened. So that's very gratifying to me. But it all started with my hatred for uh, the adaptive security algorithm, which was never designed to be a firewall. It was designed to be a NAT translation box. And it just started with that failure, in my opinion, and moved forward to failure after failure after failure after failure for almost 30 years now. So I, I, I love your story. I, I love the fact that, so my, my IT career kind of started by playing Quake as well, which is, which is funny that, I mean, I ended up in networking for, for similar reasons that we wanted to set up Deathmatch Quake on the network. So that's how I first got my first kind of experiences with networking. Um, but I, I, I kind of ended up in an infrastructure role. And I remember back when people didn't even have passwords um, for, for, to log in. And, and that kind of changed over the years. But I've always felt, or, or at least I felt over the last 10 or so years, that we've actually kind of tightened up external penetration, as in, in people coming in through firewalls. We, we, I don't think we've ever stopped it, but I think we've made it more and more difficult. So people just do things other ways and, and therefore they do things like ransomware or, or put things on the network. And that to me is... But let's look at ransomware, right? Because ransomware is a great example. Uh, in order for ransomware to happen, you have to, at, at least three or four connections have to come, go from the outside to the inside and back and forth and be set up. So the, the key thing to understand about any attack that you have that's successful. So let's start with the, the, the definition of zero trust. The actual definition is as, as we've defined in the president's NSTAC zero trust subcommittee is zero trust is a cybersecurity strategy designed to prevent data breaches and make other cybersecurity attacks unsuccessful, right? So a data breach is not when somebody gets in, it's when they take stuff out. That's according to legal and regulatory entities like GDPR, CCPA, PCI. And then we can't stop an attack from starting because we don't control the attacker, but we can make it unsuccessful. And if we do those two things, then, then 
you know, the safety of your organization is is very large. Now, if you are the victim of some successful cyber attack, it's because you had policies in place that allowed it to happen. You know, policy is binary. All you can do is allow or deny. That's it. There's nothing else. And so if you have a bad thing, it's because you had an allow rule, uh, allowing it to happen. All bad things happen inside of an allow rule. And I'll bet most organizations spend a lot of time looking at the stuff they denied. Oh, we denied that. What should, well, let's do an investigation and look for an IOC. If you denied that, just give yourself a high five and say, move on with it and, and start looking at what we allowed. That's where the bad things happen. So in a ransomware attack, you've allowed uh, probably a, an outbound connection from an unknown source, a command and control system to come into your network and drop malware on a, on, on, on a system. Uh, that theoretically has sensitive information that that is, if it gets encrypted, is damaging enough that you have to pay ransom, right? If it's not important, then you would never pay it. And then you have a rule that allows that ransomware uh, malware to run inside your system and to have an expo a successful exploitation of the system. And then you have an allow rule that allows an outbound connection the command and control server to set up the command and control channel. And then you have another, you, you have a rule, and it's probably all the same rule because TCP is just going back and forth. You have another rule, or you're going to allow the command and control server to go in and, uh, and do the symmetric key exchange and encrypt the data, which it also exfiltrates at the same time. So there's three, four at least things that you've allowed, bad things that you've allowed to happen. So it's like I, uh, I was sitting on a plane coming up here to Columbus, Ohio, and I was sitting next to the guys. And it's like you, uh, uh, this guy, and I was trying to explain the concept of it because he was asking about ransomware. And the problem is, it's like you're in your house watching the big game. Um, you're probably into soccer, right? Sounds like from your accent. I am indeed, yes, into football. Yes. No, no. Football is an American sport played with your hands, right? Soccer is a European support sport you play with your feet. It's a completely, you guys got the naming conventions all wrong, right? <laughs> I don't, uh, so anyway, you're watching a game of real American football. Um, and, uh, and, and you see a guy getting beer out of the fridge and you say, honey, you know the dude getting beer out of my fridge, and you say, and, and she goes, "No, no, I don't." Ah, uh, well, since he's able to get beer out of the fridge, I guess he belongs here. So we better make up the guest room. Right there is ransomware. You're allowing the bad guys to make up the guest room, right? That's dwell time. Dwell time is the guest room. Hey, yeah, we've yeah, we yeah, we got new pillows for you. It's all comfy in here. You know, would you like the heat turned up or maybe the air conditioning? Um, and, uh, you know, there's a TV. You can, here's the remote. Uh, so, you know, you're giving them a hotel. And, and that's the problem. You think that you're a victim, but you're a participant because you have this broken trust model. And that's my message that I preach all over the world. I have, well, you know, it's, well, I don't even know what day it is, but. I, I haven't been, 
I haven't been home for more than a day in the last four weeks, five weeks. And I'm fixing after this week here in Ohio to fly to Europe for three weeks. So there's so much demand for people who want the real answers because zero trust can really make a significant impact in these problems. So yeah, I, as I said before, I've spent, I don't know, 20 odd years in, in industry and working for some large kind of global companies. And I've, I guess actually in hindsight, I've, I've spent those 20 years making this problem worse because I've spent a lot of that time creating global WANs, whether they be MPLS or SD-WAN, and therefore actually creating a much, much larger attack surface. Um, and, and I think a lot of companies out there have done very similar things and, and they've expanded their network. And, and, and now the concept, or at least my, my rationale and the way I think about it is zero trust is critical for people moving forward that the, the cyber attacks and ransomware are are not going to get any less they're going to get more and more over the years um we we can see it going crazy now and i actually think or or my experience is since the pandemic and and since there was kind of this shift for home working zero trust is one of those things that people are now talking about and i i'd be curious to know or, or get your opinion on what happened from kind of 2010 to now? Why is it suddenly something that people want to, to know about and maybe they didn't before? Or maybe I just missed out. I don't know. But it feels like now everybody's talking about it. And it's it's been 12 years or so since the initial kind of... So have you seen the movie Fight Club? Yes. It's a What's great movie. Of, What's the first rule of Fight Club? <laughs> yeah, don't talk about Fight Club. Right. So for a long time, the first rule of zero trust is you don't talk about it. So I couldn't get people who were doing it to talk about it because their PR people, their legal people wouldn't allow them to talk about it. It was, it was this massive iceberg, but the stuff you saw was the very tip. What changed wasn't the pandemic. That's how everybody perceives it. What changed was the presidential executive order mandating it because what he said in that, what he did is he changed the incentives and said, we're eliminating the first rule of don't talk about it. We're going to talk about it. And so everything in life is about incentives, right? Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's partner, says, if you want to know how somebody's going to behave, look at how they're incented. So, uh, I, you know, I would always, if I got with a, a leader, you know, a CEO, a president, a member of the board of directors, they would understand what this is about and want to do it. but. The, the people in the trenches were afraid to do it because they weren't given the proper incentives that allowed them to do it. So they had to get that first. So I spent a lot of time uh, with leaders helping them change the incentive structure so that their IT and security teams could feel good about doing this because they're all afraid that, oh, this isn't the way we've always done it, so we'll get in trouble. And so since the way we've always done it hasn't worked and there's a bad thing that happens, well, we don't get in trouble because that's the way we've always done it. But if the bad thing happened and we're doing it a new way, we might get in trouble. So we'd rather do it the old way and still have the bad thing happen instead of try something new. And, and that's because of incentives. So what changed was the incentive structure. 
Uh, and it really started to change in 2016 when there was the OPM data breach, the Office of Personnel Management, when the list of spies was stolen uh, that the U.S. federal government has. It's actually not the list of spies. It's the list of people with uh, secret and top secret clearances. But out of that, foreign actors could deduce who were spies. So if you've ever seen Mission Impossible 1 with Tom Cruise hanging upside down, trying to steal the knock list, the non-operational covers list out of this room where that's so secure uh, that if his, you know, a bead of sweat drops on the floor, the alarm goes off, that room didn't exist. All Tom Cruise needed was to study SQL injection and get himself a, a, a copy of Metasploit, and he could have done the same thing, right? So... Uh, after that happened, the U.S. Congress did a study on that uh, data breach and came out with a recommendation saying that the Office of Personal Management of the U.S. federal government should mandate that all government agencies adopt zero trust. That was in 2016. That, that happened this May. That Finally, uh, OMB finally issued that memorandum six years later. Right, because that's kind of the speed. But I knew internally from talking to all these people uh, in the government that it was a huge movement inside the government at 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 the places that were the that had the most significant data in the wake of OPM. So I've known this is coming. Across, you know, there's been a lot of rumors coming to me for three administrations now, and it just it happened that that the tipping point was kind of the solar winds, Mandiant stuff, the so-called supply chain things, and, and they just finally pulled the trigger. But it was the changing of the incentive structure by the US federal government that impacted everywhere in the world because uh, suddenly it was okay to talk about. It. So at the start of this call, I had every intention of asking you if if you thought that the zero trust kind of philosophy or strategy was still a valid one. I think the question's a little bit mute now because I think you've you've answered that pretty clearly. Um, I, I guess I don't want to keep you for too much longer. So I guess really my my I guess my final question or 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 I'll ask two questions. One of them is where do you think people should start their journey, I'll call it. And the, the, the second one is, do you think that companies are, are actually going to be able to kind of deploy this strategy? And maybe deploy is the wrong word, but... Or, or, yeah. Well, you, you deploy the environment, right? But the first concept, tactically, there's a five-step model on how you build it. And you'll see all this in, in you can go to ontoit.net and you can read the, um, uh, the, 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 you can download the Zero Trust Dictionary. I built that for the U.S. Uh, government a number of years ago. Or also, I'm going to also send you the NSTAT report and you can see that. But there's a five-step model. First thing you need to do, define the protect surface. What are you going to protect? So you talked about you were making the attack surface bigger. Well, I've shrunken the attack surface down orders of magnitude to something very small and easily known called a protect surface. So a protect surface contains a single DAS element, data, application, asset, or service. So I take a single um, data set, like 
cardholder data for credit cards, PCI, the PAN. And I put that inside of a protect service, right? So that's step one. I now know what I need to protect. Everything is based upon what do I need to protect. The problem that we've had is we've been building these environments without understanding what we needed to protect. So we just threw stuff at it, right? Randomly with that whole defense in depth or what my friend Rick Holland calls expense in depth. Expense in depth, you, you spend money you don't have on things you don't need because you don't know what you're supposed to protect in the first place. And if it's about spending enough money, you've spent enough money. If it's about buying enough stuff, you've bought enough stuff. It's just, it wasn't the right stuff for the right thing that you needed to protect and it wasn't put in the right place. And so we start with the protect surface. So we're going to protect cardholder data environment, the PAN, right, to meet PCI requirements. Then we're going to map the transaction flow. That's step two, because we need to understand how the system works as a system. And that will show us where the controls need to be placed. So, so step three is to architect the environment. And it doesn't matter where that environment is located. It doesn't matter if it's in a private or a public cloud, if it's on an endpoint, if it's in a data center. It just doesn't matter. That stuff is irrelevant. Um, but but it's all the, the protection and the controls are based upon what uh, you're protecting. So I'm going to use a British term uh, and then we'll translate it into English. So every zero trust environment is bespoke, right? It's designed for the thing you're protecting or in the US we say tailor-made. So it's tailor-made for that environment. And then the fourth step is creating policy. There's a way you do policy. It's called the Kipling method. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Rudyard Kipling gave uh, us that idea in the poem in 1902. And every culture, every language has that idea. So I use that as a framework for writing policy. Who should have access via what application? Uh, where is that located? Uh, and, and how should that happen? What are the sets of criteria that I should apply to allow it to happen. Because you see in zero trust, everything starts with a de default deny. Remember policy is binary. So all I can do is, is allow or deny. Well, if I start with a default deny, everything is denied. And then I'm just gonna turn on the things that are allowed. I've eliminated 50% of the decisions that need to be made. I've really simplified things. And so I'm gonna turn on the things that need to happen instead of playing whack-a-mole and trying to put deny rolls in, which never work. And uh, so I create this policy based upon multiple binary inputs and multiple sets of criteria. And then the fifth step is to monitor and maintain, take all of the telemetry and then re-inject it back into the system so that I can make each phase or each step stronger and stronger over time so that it becomes what's known as an anti-fragile system. So if you've read the book, Anti-Fragile by Taleb, he's the one who gave me the vocabulary to explain what I was trying to do all those years ago, create a, uh, a, a system that got stronger and stronger under attack. And that's what zero trust is, it's an anti-fragile system. So you build the first zero trust environment for the first protect surface and you do it again for the second protect surface and then the third protect surface and the fourth protect surface and you keep those things going and going you know, we have a, a, a major client. I, I do manage services from a zero trust perspective. So I'm always looking at the protect surfaces. And behind that, there's technology that we're managing. But the customers end up not caring about the technology. They carry, they care about the protect surface. And so, uh, you know, you're going to, you, you're like, 
one of the world's largest banks. I think it has 28 different protect surfaces is all. And so I've taken this huge problem of cybersecurity for a major bank, right, that's global and broken it down into 28 different problems that are manageable. And now we can start solving this. And, uh, and so once you do that, you just maintain it over time. And then we can track the maturity. There's a maturity model. You'll see it in the NSTAC report. So we track the maturity of each protect surface across each of the five steps. And so I can score based upon maturity. And then I can work with, with leadership and they might say, hey, I want, you know, the maturity level uh, of, of the PCI environment is low. So I want to put a project to increase the security in, in the PCI environment so that uh, it, it, it has a higher maturity score and therefore it, it is more uh, resilient and, and, and um, also meets the PCI compliance requirements. And so that's how we do it. So I, one of the things that I got asked a lot, so I was at an event in the UK called InfoSec last week, and I had a number of um, graduates or students or people studying security come up to me and say, how do I get into kind of zero trust? Where do I go to learn? What do I need to do? And, and based on what you're, you're saying, and, and, and my belief is that to do this and to do it across the globe and do it in some large companies, we, we need more resources. We need people to get trained. We need people to understand. We need that whole kind of raft of things. Because as you said, many companies do this the way they've always done it because they've always done it that way. And I, and I also think part of it is because the people in those companies don't know how to do this any differently or, or, or haven't put the effort in or, or don't know where to look for resources. So if you were a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old person kind of taking the step towards IT and security, what would you think would be a good resource? I mean, obviously reading the stuff you've written, doing a bit of research, but is there anything that you would think Yes, you must do that. Well, I mean, I think a, a lot of it is experiential, right? I mean, I don't know. that I'm working on zero trust training courses through uh, ISMG and cybered.io. And so there will be some training, some more advanced training. Um, but it's, it's not as hard as you think it is. I mean, that's the thing. I, I'm all about simplicity. And other people try to make it sound hard. And I, 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 I feel for the people who are trying to do this stuff, because when they read some of this stuff, I don't know how they make heads or tails of it. I can't. You know, I'm like, whoa. And it's clear that those people who are writing this stuff are writing it from maybe an academic perspective, and they've never really done stuff in real life. So cybersecurity is an experiential business. You can't study it and write about it. Uh, from an ivory tower, you know, even though people are getting PhDs in, in zero trust, which completely blows my mind. But I, I try to spend time. I, I, ha I have open office hours, typically once a week, where you can go to the website. There's a big button. The first thing is talk to John and you can join a webinar and ask me whatever question you want. Right. And I try to be uh, as available for people as I can, but you know my schedule's pretty jam packed. So sometimes that's hard. I, you know, even us trying to get this this little podcast recorded has been a struggle just because of travel. So um, absolutely, we, you know, 
I want to be here for these people. And so those are the, um, uh, those are the things that I would say, just keep searching. I, I try to post things that are useful on LinkedIn. Um, you know, there's a one hour session that I've posted a few times uh, uh, called when the cyber war was zero trust. If you watch that on YouTube, you will understand the, the, the grand strategic, strategic, tactical and operational areas that zero trust all fits in. So uh, this is not um, uh, that, you know, this is not uh, that difficult, right? I tried to make it really, really, really easy because I've been doing this for a long time. Right. And, and, and I've been a network engineer and a security engineer and a pen tester. And I want I know how hard those jobs are and I want it to be easy for the people doing those jobs. And so I've spent a lot of time making it easy. And again, it's, uh, you know, it, it's technology independent. Right. Uh, I'm not vendor agnostic because if I was vendor agnostic, I could neither confirm nor deny the existence of vendors. But uh, from from a from an independence perspective, you know, you're going to have to choose controls based upon what you need to protect, not based upon the sales pitch of the vendor. And there is no vendor who has everything that you need. It just doesn't exist and it will never exist, nor should it exist. But you want to look at how do all of the various parts of the things that you need interoperate because cybersecurity is a system. And so you have to do, you have to be a system thinker and, and, uh, and not look at these quadrant methodologies. You should never ever buy technology based upon the analyst quadrant methodologies. Those things are dangerous to the industry. I think they're really bad for the industry. They create, insecure environments, you know, uh, because those things don't operate together and they're not, it's not system thinking. So uh, you want to think of uh, everything from a system perspective. You know, you would never go in a building designed the way that we design cybersecurity systems with, well, I'm going to buy this thing because this group says that that's the best of this. I'm going to buy the best bolt because this is the number one bolt from that group and the best nut, that's the best from that one. And they don't really work together, but if I try hard enough, I can kind of make them fit, but there's a big gap and everything shakes a little bit. But it, but they said that that's the best bolt and that's the best nut. So uh, that's what I'm going to choose because I don't want to get fired because I decided to buy a nut and a bolt that work together, but they weren't the best nut and bolt, right? I mean, this is how sad our industry is. And that's what I'm working to change. Yeah, I mean, I have to, I have to admit, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, I like I said, I've spent many years going out and researching products, and I am amazed at the number of people out there that just buy best in breed, and they don't buy what's going to fit their need because most of the time they haven't actually sat down and figured out what their need is. So, certainly listening to you talk today highlights to me why you need to do a lot of work in advance of buying product you need to understand where your issues lie what the problems are you're trying to fix what the approach should be and get everything set up before you even go and look at product and i think a lot of people just still just don't do that they just go and buy 
the thing off the shelf because that's what they've always done. Yeah, and the the, the deal here is, um, you know, people always want, I guess, you know, people will say the easy button or whatever the, the term you're going to use. But they just want to be able to buy something and, and, and have the problem fixed. And it's, it's, it's a design problem, not a technology problem. And so all the time I'm on calls, where should I put widget X? Where should I put, you know, uh, gizmo Y? I have no idea. What do you mean you have no idea? You're supposed to be the expert on that. Well, I don't know what you're trying to protect with widget X or gizmo Y. Well, we don't either. We haven't thought about what we need to protect. Okay, well, then you're going to fail. You will fail if you don't know what you're going to protect. And so start thinking about that. And then the answer to where do you start is anywhere. It doesn't matter where you start. It matters that you start, right? You're going to take the 1,000-mile journey. Uh, where, where does the 1,000-mile journey begin? With the first step, right? And, and you may not even know whether you're going to go north, south, east, or west. But if you just stand there in place and never move, well, then of course you're never going to get to the end of your destination, you know? So I have a friend who was in the military, and he says, there's two things you can be. You can be wrong or you can be lost. And he says, I've been both. And it's much worse to be lost than it is to be wrong. because you see, you need a map. That's the best weapon you can have. And if you don't have a map, you're going to be lost and there's no way to get out of there. You can be wrong, but if you have the map, you can look at the map and figure out how to get right again. And so Zero Trust gives you a five-step model. That's your map. Follow the map. It's very simple. And so once you follow that map and use that map, you won't ever be lost again. Now, you might get a couple things wrong. Of course you are. This is an incredibly complex system. I mean, I am never amazed when things break. I'm more amazed that they work as well as they do because I was around when this whole thing started. And the whole internet and everything we do is held together with bubble gum and baling wire and duct tape and super glue. I mean, it just is so incredibly fragile. And, um, and so. You know, yeah, things are, there's going to be good days and bad days, but you can, the more you do it, the more good days you're going to have and the, the fewer bad days you're going to have. Well, I have to thank you for your time um, because it's been great. I appreciate you taking time out of your clearly hugely busy schedule. And, and I know that it, it was tricky for you to organize this and you're in a hotel room and you and you've met me so I, I do appreciate that I mean fundamentally like I said we're just trying to spread the word we're trying to get people to understand it and I think one of my biggest frustrations and one of the reasons why I've left corporates and come over to kind of work on the dark side in sales is to try and spread that word and, and to try and get people to make sensible choices about how they go about this because vendors will just sell you what they want to sell you. <laughs> yeah, but let's actually, let's dissect that term, the dark side, because I've been in the vendor community. I'm at a vendor now. But if we look at where the advancement has to come from, it has to come from uh, research funded 
by sales. Yeah, so absolutely. all this stuff is important right now. You know, the more integrity you can have in your message, the better off you're going to be. But most products have a role somewhere in 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 an ecosystem because this is an ecosystem. Uh, the problem becomes when you say uh, my product will solve 100 percent of your problems. That's disingenuous and people shouldn't do that. And the customers uh, get upset about that, too. But, um, you know, at the same time, you're not on the dark side. Right. Because this is how you have the opportunity to to spread the message and then see more things. One of the problems we have, if you spend all your time, uh, you know, in an organization and I've been, in, you know, have clients who you know, they got a job at that organization when they got out of college or uni, as you say, I think. Right. Don't you say uni? And do, uh, yeah. so perspective is an important thing. But uh, you're not on the dark side you, you, because you have an opportunity. And the fact that that when you're in a, a corporate environment and you think, well, you know, I'm the good guy doing here, you haven't seen what happens in other places, right? So you don't have enough visibility into the rest of the world. And that's what, you know, having interactions with other people really help you understand and, and building networks and, and, and uh, talking to people. You know, I'm always amazed. I go to these, I, I go to a lot of conventions and people don't want to ask questions. Well, how are you going to learn if you don't ask questions? The, the, there are no bad questions, right? I have to ask questions all the time to people because you'll say something about some acronym and I'll say, well, what does that mean to you? Because that same acronym, like ZTNA which people think means zero trust network access. Well, it was originally zero trust network architecture, right? And so- Yeah, that is one of my pet hates. I mean, that is- <laughs> And it's just, there's no point in even, you know, spending any, any hate cycles on that because you're not moving the ball forward, right? So, you know, what you want to do is keep your head in the game so you move that ball forward to the goal and then you kick it in the goal John, I'd like to thank you for all your time today. Really insightful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Great to actually meet you. Um, before you disappear, I've got one last question to ask you. Um, what would, if people are about to start out on this journey or somewhere along the journey, what would be your advice for them? Well, what would you suggest they, that they do when embarking on this journey? Well, an early adopter. Uh, the person who led the project said to me, we spent more time arguing about zero trust than we did building the first zero trust environment in our organization. It's actually really simple to do, right? I mean, I've, de I've deployed a zero trust environment in one day for like a mainframe because I could understand what the protect surface was and I could see what controls based upon the way the system worked. So we got the right control system in and, and deployed it in one day. And, and the policy was pretty simple because, you know, terminal services are allowed to access this and, and we're going to do some things to the terminal services to make sure that everything's cool. But, you know, it was a pretty easy thing to do. And, and people said, you can never put a mainframe in there. Well, I've done it, right? Just the same way I've, I've done it for uh, factory factory floors and, and oil rigs and all kinds of stuff. So you just need to be willing to let your imagination roll a little bit 
in this world and, and think of everything from a system perspective. This podcast is a production of the SSC Forum. Editing and post-production is provided by John Spiegel. Sound engineering is expertly conducted by Chris Danby. Food recommendations? Solely the territory of Jay Tilson. Thanks for listening and give us a follow on LinkedIn as well as on Twitter. Twitter.